go ahead and open up your Bible to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. If you don't know me, my name is Colton. I am one of the uh, elders here at Renewal. Um, And so let me do this one more time just for fun's sake. He is risen. risen It feels so good to do that not on Easter, let me tell you. Uh, It's just a lot of fun to do. Um, But you may not realize it, but you are here on a very special morning. Uh, We have been in the Gospel of Mark since January, and today is our final day. My vote is that we start next week with Mark 1-1. Who's up for that? It has been a good time. It's kind of a bittersweet for me. Uh, Mark is special to me. It is my favorite gospel, and I hope that you have enjoyed it as much as I have. I also think it's one of the most misunderstood gospels. There is so much depth to it uh, that we don't see because Mark is a strange writer. We'll talk about that later. He always has unfinished stories, unanswered questions, and it's like, Mark, what are you doing, right? Um, But I am sad that we're finishing this book, but I'm also excited Uh, because today is one of the most special days um, that we will have as a church. So um, I'm going to read only to verse 8, and this is where we have some controversy, okay? So we're starting off the morning good today. I'm only going to read to verse 8, and so in a moment I'll ask you to pray for me and pray for yourself, and then we'll read to verse 8. And so the question is, okay, why are you only reading to verse 8? More than likely, In your copy of Scripture, you will see, starting in verse 9, double brackets. Anybody have that? Um, And for most of us, especially if you are using an ESV like I am, you will see a note on the bottom of the page that says something similar to some manuscripts in the book um, with Mark 16, 8. Others include verses 9 through 20. Basically what that means, what your Bible is telling you, is that most scholars agree that verses 9 through 20 were not part of the original manuscripts of Mark. So I want to talk about that for a second before we jump in. That doesn't mean that verses 9 through 20 are not true, or that they did not happen, are reflective of reality, but it does tell us that the earliest copies of the Greek manuscripts of the book of Mark did not include verses 9 through 20 in them. If you have a King James Bible, not New King James, if you have a King James Bible, uh, then your copy of Scripture probably does not have those double brackets. Well, why is that? Okay, what's, why does King James Bible do something and then the other Bibles do something else? Well, I actually talked about this in a sermon called Can We Trust the Bible? So if you are want to know more about Greek manuscripts and textual variants, and I encourage you to go listen to that. But basically, the King James Bible was written in 1611. It was based on seven Greek manuscripts. The oldest one uh, we had was written in the 12th century, so almost 1,200 years after the time of Jesus. And since then, we have been able to gather a number of more manuscripts, and we've been able to compare them to see what matches And what doesn't? So we've had thousands more discovered since 1611. And what we have discovered is that the earliest manuscripts do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. So traditionally, the book of Mark ends at verse 8. But you should not panic that the Bible is in question. I wish I could talk about this much more, but we have so much to get to. Go and listen to Can We Trust uh, the Bible, right? It does not mean that verses 9 through 20 are untrue, okay? 
And I'm going to actually address this at the end as well and talk about why Mark ends the book the way that he does. So we'll come back to this later, but I just want to encourage you. The fact that we are not going to be addressing in a full sermon Mark's, uh, Mark 16, 9 through 20 does not mean that we think that they do not belong. But for our purposes today, we are going to end in verse 8 because I think there's a reason that Mark ends the book the way that he does. So with that said, uh, and if you have questions about that, you can come talk to me. Um, love this. It's a fun conversation for me to have. Uh, so Mark 16, verse 1. Here we go. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And when they were saying to one, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Well, right here at the beginning of the chapter, we meet three women. They're mentioned all throughout the gospel. We met them last week in chapter 15. These women were at the crucifixion, Mark 15, 40, right? So these women are watching Jesus be crucified. It says there was also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and the younger of Joseph and Salome. And in the next verse in Mark 15, uh, Mark gives us some background on them. Here's what he says about these women. He says, when he was in Galilee, they followed him and they ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And then in verse 47 in Mark 15, we learn that they were also witnesses to his burial. It says, Mary Magdalene and the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. So these women that we meet at the beginning of this chapter, they were followers of Jesus. They knew him. They knew the disciples. They watched him die and they saw where he was buried. And in Mark 16, 1, we see that they are going to go back to the tomb that, where he was laid. It says, when the Sabbath was passed. So something you may not know, the Sabbath in the Jewish calendar was on a Saturday. Jesus was killed on a Friday. And for them, a day started when the sun uh, went down. So not like us, the day starts for us when the sun comes up. For them, a day starts when the sun goes down. So what we would call Friday night, they would call Saturday, okay? And Saturday was the Sabbath. So the sun goes down on Friday night. They all had to cease what they were doing because Friday night for them was Saturday, which was the Sabbath. So when Jesus died on Friday, Joseph of Arimathea had to rush to get Jesus buried before the Sabbath hit, right? And so he didn't have a chance to do all the burial rites. And so because Joseph had to rush the burial of Jesus, now we get what we have with these women. So when Saturday night comes around, for them, which would have been the beginning of Sunday, the first day of the week, they went out to get the spices, which was required for 
the burial, the spices that you see mentioned here, it's basically perfume, okay? Basically perfume. It says they wanted to anoint him. That means that they, you would pour perfume on the body, and then you would set the bottles around the body, and the purpose of it was to offset the odor of decomposition. So look at verse 2. Very early on the first day of the week, so this would have been um, Sunday morning. Remember, you had Saturday night, which is Sunday night, and then this is Sunday morning. When the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance? So the women, they're on their way to the tomb, and they ask a question. Hey, who's going to roll the stone away for us? These stones were about six feet high. They weighed about 700 pounds. They were easy to move in front of the tomb because you would have these little grooves and it would go down into this tunnel-looking thing and you could just push it in. But once the stone was put in place, it was almost impossible to move. And so Mark is telling us about these sweet women that they just didn't plan ahead. They remembered the spices, but they totally forgot the 10 to 12 dudes it would take to move this stone. But in verse 4, they show up and they notice something interesting. It says, looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Now, Mark doesn't tell us that he is an angel. Matthew and Luke clarify for that, that for us. But that description, a young man in a white robe, in all Jewish literature, that's a normal way to describe an angel. So put yourself in these women's shoes. They expect to walk up and find a closed tomb and a dead body. Instead, they find an open tomb and a divine being sitting inside, okay? The text says that they were alarmed. That word is actually pretty hard to translate. Uh, Some of your texts may say they were afraid or they were terrified. It's just a hard word to to translate. But at its core, it means intense emotional response. So just imagine you walk into your house. You open the door and you see this strange divine being just sitting on your couch. What do you do? Ah! Right? You're scared. You're alarmed. We don't know if it was a positive response or a negative response. Like, I'm excited or I'm uh, terrified. The text doesn't tell us. All we know is they walked in and went, ooh! That's all we know. It was an intense emotional response. And the angel says, do not be alarmed. Naturally. Right? I've always wondered, like, do angels have, like, a how to interact with humans handbook? And the first thing that it says is the first time you encounter a human, they will be scared. So you say, do not be alarmed, right? Because that's what they all say all throughout the Gospels. He says, do not be alarmed. And he says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So first, it's interesting how the angel talks with them, right? The the angel tells tells them why they are here. He says, you are looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He adds Nazareth because Jesus was a common name. There were many people named Jesus. So he wants them to know, hey, the person that I'm talking about is the same person that you are looking for. The Jesus of Nazareth that was crucified. So women, you are not in the wrong place. You are in the tomb that the Jesus that you knew who you saw crucified was laid in. And then the angel tells them the most stunning thing. He says, He's risen, and he is risen. He is not here. And just to be sure that they understand what he's saying, he says, look to the place where they laid him. The man who calmed the wind and the seas, 
He's not here. The man who raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, she's not here. The one who fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, he is not here. The one who stood in front of the high priest and said, I am the Christ, he is not here. The one who was beaten, mocked, and shamed is not here. The one who took the cup of wrath for you and for me, he's not here. And he's not here because he's not dead anymore. He's alive. And that reality, she's excited. Maybe not excited, but, uh, but that reality that he has risen has shaped the rest of history. It has shaped the rest of history. Think, think of this. When Paul is in Philippi in Acts 16, a very familiar story, uh, there is a demon-possessed slave girl. Her masters use her for fortune-telling, and every day they are using her to make money. And this little girl is following Paul around, mocking them, annoying them. She's yelling as he's preaching, these men are servants of the Most High God. And Paul, finally in annoyance, turns to her and proclaims, hey, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And the demon comes out. Her owners naturally get upset because they've lost their means of income. And so they arrest Paul. They drag him in front of everyone, strip him down, and they beat him with rods. They throw him in prison in Silas, and they put them in stocks. And so here's the picture. Paul and Silas are beaten with rods. They're shamed. They're sitting in prison, prison, feet are in stocks, and they're sleepless at midnight. And what does Acts 16 tell us that they are doing? They're singing and praying. It really got me this week, because I don't do that. When life gets hard, I don't sing, I grumble. When life just gets a little bit tough, I'm not singing, I'm not praying, I'm grumbling. I think we all do this. Life is falling apart. What are Paul and Silas doing? Acts 16.25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening. And here's the point that I hope grabs my heart. People who believe in the resurrection don't grumble. They sing. They pray. In in the first century, stocks were this brutal and horrific practice of contorting your body in all sorts of different directions. They would lock your limbs in these awful positions, sometimes for days, and your body would just cramp up, and sometimes it would just give up. They were probably thirsty and hungry, They don't know if they're going to get out of prison or they're going to be executed. And they are singing. The only reason you sing in that moment is if you believe that your Messiah Messiah has risen from the grave. That's the only reason. Because if he has the power to raise from the grave, then his claim that he has forgiveness for sins is true. Because he has the power to do that. If you believe that he has the power to raise from the grave then you better, bet that you better bet that you're going to believe that he will sustain you in your suffering. The risen Christ. He's better than all things. And so one question that we have to ask is the church, because all that sounds nice and good, right? How do we know? How do we know for sure that that actually happened, that he rose from the grave? Well, Mark has been doing something very interesting in these first six verses, right? Mark has changed his writing style pretty much in these first six verses. Mark has been presenting all of this as if it is recorded history. 
You see it in the way that he's repeating the names. You ever notice that? He's repeating the names. He did it with the women, right? I read you all the times that the names of the women were mentioned. He's doing that on purpose. Do you remember last week when uh, Simon of Cyrene helped Jesus carry the cross? In Mark 15, 21, it says, they compelled the passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. We read that and we're like, okay, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Cool. We don't know Alexander and Rufus, so we just kind of move on. But the assumption here is that the original readers of Mark's gospel would have known Alexander and Rufus. That's the only reason to mention them. I mean, imagine being one of them, Alexander or Rufus. Oh, you're Alex? Wait, 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 you're that Alex? Your dad is Simon of Cyrene? You're like, yeah, bro, I know, I'm Alex. Get it all the time, right? They didn't have a digital collection of sources. This was Mark's bibliography, a source that could verify the truth. Don't just take my words for it. Go and ask them. Like 1 Corinthians 15, 6 says, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. That Paul is saying, hey, go and ask them. They were there. And as you look throughout history, no one can deny that after Jesus rose from the grave, a movement began because hundreds of people were consumed with the idea that the Messiah died and then did not stay dead. I mean, people have died. They've given their lives because they believed in that reality. And within two centuries, the gospel spread to the entire known world. By 351 AD, 51% of the Roman Empire claimed Christ as king. That's before Constantine made it the official religion of Rome. And the resurrection of Christ was the resounding anthem of the early church. And for our little group of believers here, it should be our anthem as well. Because what you see in the book of Acts is you see a group of people transformed by the resurrection of Christ. And here's why. Within that resurrection, within the resurrection of Christ is a promise. Is a promise. Humanity has always longed for eternal security and satisfaction. And the promise from the resurrected Christ is that our place in eternity is secure with him. So let me flesh that out. There is something in each person, each person that has ever lived since the beginning of time that makes us rebel against God, that we are all fall under the total depravity of sin. We all have fallen Short, and there is something that drives each person to discontentment. Something that tells us, though, there is something more. There's something more to long for. Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, though, he has put eternity into man's heart. You and I and every other person on the globe is wired to long for something that is not present in the physical world. We are wired by God to long for something that will satisfy us. And the thing is, in our minds and in our hearts, we know that that thing exists somewhere out there. You ever felt that? That somewhere out there, there is something that will fully satisfy my heart, something that I was designed for. And we say in our heads, if I could just do this, if they would just be this way, if my kids would be this way, if my spouse would be this way, if I could just have this thing, if I could just have this amount of money. We, want, we don't want to be king of the whole world. We just want what our little kingdom wants. 
And if we can get what our little kingdom wants, then I'll be good. If I could just have a little bit more of this. We've got T-Rex arms and it's right there and we can't reach it. And we never seem to get, even if we get it, that feeling still remains. Think about it this way. If eternity is a massive hole that you needed to fill, there's no amount of wealth, comfort, status, family that would be able to fill that hole. The hole of eternity will never be full. It cannot be filled by the things of this world. This is why one of my best ancient friends, maybe he's one of my best friends in reality, I don't know, Augustine, he said, you have made for you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Because the reality is we live our lives feeling the barriers of sin. We feel the barriers of that depravity, of our limitations. And each day, if we're honest, we feel the brokenness. We feel that we're not enough. We, we feel the fear and the pain. So here's how Christianity spread so fast. The resurrection of Christ revealed to us that those barriers of pain and fear and shame have been removed. The thing that kept us out of what we were designed to be has been removed. The thing that our hearts were most desperate for, the thing that we felt like we could never get, the thing that felt just out of our reach, peace with our maker has been given to us through the blood and resurrection of Christ. The death of Christ shows us the price of our sin. It shows the providence of God. It shows the justice of God. The resurrection of Christ shows us that that bill has been paid in full. That you can rest. You can relax. Because he has done it. He has risen. And the story of Acts is God using believers like you and I to proclaim to the world, see the risen Christ. Not you, not me. See the risen Christ. So if I can encourage you as a child of God, the barriers that you feel, they have been broken. You don't have to earn anything. You don't have to prove anything. You don't have to hide anything. You don't have to feel shame. If you have put your faith in Christ and he has sought you and bought you, then your life is covered with the payment of his blood and now your future is secure because Christ is risen from the grave. You know what's beautiful? At the end of all things, when we are in the new heaven and the new earth, it says there will be no temple. There will be no temple. Revelation 21, 22. And I saw no temple in the city for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. That God, his presence was there, right? But there was a barrier to it. The, the people of God, their hearts longed for him, but they could not commune with him because his presence was confined to a room that because of our sin, we did not have access to. We cannot enter that room and commune with God. But at the end of all things, in that place, on that day, it says there will be no temple because there will be no barriers to experiencing and knowing the presence of God. As Ephesians says, he has reconciled us to God and he has killed our hostility. And what this text is saying is that God's presence is no longer limited to a room that we don't have access to. The whole world is the holy of holies. 
The temple isn't a physical place any longer, but God himself is the temple. And in that new heaven and new earth, the presence of God will not be something that we search for, that we look for. It will be inescapable. In John 15, uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples. It's one of my favorite texts. He says in, in verse four, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus says, abide in me. Another word you could put there is the word remain. So remain in me. And Jesus says, if you remain in me, then you will bear, bear fruit. Now, Paul in Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit, whom Jesus calls our helper. So I'm going to put all these together. Galatians 5, 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Did you notice the word that Paul used in verse 24? Those who belong, those who remain, those who abide, have crucified the flesh and killed its desires. And the idea is, in their place, there is love, joy, patience, kindness. So let me ask a question. If Jesus has secured our place with him in eternity, will it ever be possible to be apart from him? If abiding in him bears fruit, love, joy, peace, and the whole world is the temple, meaning there is no, nowhere where God is not, could we say then that on that day, we will know every second of every moment of eternity, we will know the joy of abiding in Christ. We will know the love that comes with abiding and remaining in Christ. See, Today, we find these moments of joy, peace, love, but each moment is ultimately interrupted. They're interrupted by the corruption of the flesh, right? Either my corruption, the world's corruption, someone else's corruption, but each day there is something or someone interrupting our attempt to abide in Jesus. Here's the hope of the resurrection. One day your abiding in Jesus will remain uninterrupted. It will go on forever. And it will be beautiful, and it will be rest, and it will be hope, and it will be joy. So how did Christianity spread so fast in the early church? Because the apostles, the people of God, brought a realistic experience to what our hearts most longed for. Satisfied worship in our God, that the Spirit awoke in people's hearts to see those barriers had been removed. Not because of you, not because of them, but because of Christ, that he came and in his sovereignty, he has called you to be his son and his daughter. Here's the second thing I would say about the early church. The, the, the resurrected Christ is an invitation to belong. The resurrection of Christ is an invitation to belong. Everybody in this room wants to belong, right? No one likes to be left out. I still think about the day that I got picked last for dodgeball. Still think about it. Because I was pretty good, but I was new, no one knew me, and I am still offended by that. And I made sure that I dominated that game. We all want to belong, 
right? We all want to feel uh, included. The resurrection is the promise that Christ has bought your place to belong. Look at Mark 16, 7. The angel tells them, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. You see that? The disciples and Peter. You might ask, why does he single Peter out there, right? Peter was one of the disciples. Why not just say, hey, tell his disciples? That would have included Peter. Well, don't forget where we saw Peter last, right? Jesus said, hey, you're all gonna betray me. You're all gonna scatter. You're all gonna run away. Peter pops up and says, no way, not me. I'm better than all these other fools. I will never do that to you. And Jesus said, before the rooster crows, before the night is over, Peter, you will betray me. And when Jesus is in his religious trial, someone comes up to Peter and says, hey, don't you know that guy? He says, no, I don't know him. You kind of sound like him. No way, I, I, I don't know. No, I think I saw you with him. And then Peter starts to cuss just to prove that he's not with him. He says, I don't know him. Luke tells us that not only did the rooster crow, but Jesus looked right at him. And the last thing we see from Peter is that he ran away and he cried. So I think it says, and Peter, because if it just said, tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee, I think Peter and maybe even the rest of the disciples would said, hey, I don't think that includes you, Peter. And I don't think Peter would have believed that that included him. Imagine the weight that Peter felt. Imagine it. I mean, he really blew it, didn't he? And how many of us have felt like we've blown it like that? I can imagine there are many of us in this room, you feel like you've blown it. And the angel says, tell the disciples and Peter, I want them there with me. I mean, think about what the angel could have said, right? Tell those punks, tell those cowards, tell those betrayers. He doesn't. He wants his disciples to know your place is with me. Be with me. It's the same message that he told them at the beginning of the gospel. Be with me. Be in my presence. This is our story. That if you have faith in Christ, if he has paid your debt, then he does not hold your sin over you anymore. I think that's how we think of him sometimes. That every time I sin, he's adding that to the whiteboard so that when I get to heaven, he'll walk through all the things that I've done. Here's what you did good, and here's where you really blew it. The reality of the resurrection is that when we get there, all that we will care about is his presence. He will not go through a list of what you did wrong and what you did not do wrong. All that he will care about is his glory, and all that you will care about is his glory, because he's better than anything else, and you will be consumed with joy. So he says, I'm going before them. Tell them to meet me. In Galilee, one of my favorite texts is Ephesians 2.9. Paul says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're a fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I've told you this before, that word aliens, which I think is one of the most fascinating words, uh, it's the word para oikos. It means, para means by or outside, and oikos means house. And so Paul's saying here, hey, you're no longer by the house. You're no longer outside the, the house. The, the picture is, that the people of God, they're inside this house and a massive celebration is happening. He told them, hey, the far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
And this celebration is happening. And so for you, you're no longer by the house. You're no longer watching this party happening, but you have been invited in to the house, to the presence of God, with the people of God. You are now members of the household of God. Think about it this way. Peter doesn't have to earn his way back into the group. Jesus paid for Peter's sin that he committed three days ago. And you need to know and believe, and only the Spirit can make you believe that. I can't convince you, your parents, your brother, your sister, the person next to you, can't convince you that you are forgiven. Only the Spirit can convince you that you are forgiven. But I pray that you believe it, that you are forgiven by the blood of Christ and the resurrection of Christ is the promise that it's true. And then the book ends with Jesus reuniting with his disciples. They throw a big party. Everyone's full of joy, and they change the world. It says in verse 8, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And traditionally, verse 8 is where the book ends. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It's a weird ending, and it bothered people. When it, I'm assuming it bothered people, because the belief is that someone wrote in the ending that we have in verses 9 through 20 later, more than likely, someone added it. They probably took portions of Matthew and Luke and John and, and put together uh, the ending from verses 9 through 20. And it doesn't mean it's untrue. Everything that is in there, I don't know what the snakes deal is about. Maybe that's why I'm not going through that because I don't want to deal with the snakes. But I have no idea. But the rest of it, you, it's probably true, right? But you have to ask, okay, if verse 8 is what the original manuscripts show, and that's traditionally where we believe the book of Mark ended, why does Mark end his gospel this way? If you've been paying attention to Mark and the way he writes, this is what he does. Mark always stops short of where you think he should stop. That's why so many people love John, because John will give you all the details in the world. And with Mark, you're like, okay, bro, what are you saying? I don't understand. Mark never really gives us the full story, does he? He puts us in a moment where the answer to the question is ours to answer. Or the last step isn't told to you, but you have to walk into the last step. Anybody ever, here ever seen The NeverEnding Story? It's a good movie. It's about a little boy, if you've never seen it. He's being chased by bullies, so he hides in a bookstore. And in this bookstore is an old man who is reading this big, ancient-looking book. And the boy says, hey, what is that? And the old man goes, you don't want to read this book. The kid's like, yes, I do. I want to read that book. And the old man goes, no, 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 you like stories like Robin Hood. Those stories are safe. He says, this book, this isn't safe. The phone rings, and so the, the old man, he goes to the back of the bookstore, and so the boy does what any little boy would do. He steals the book and runs, right? And he begins to read the book. And it's about a world that is falling apart and being overwhelmed by darkness. And as he reads, he finds out that there is a name. If someone speaks this name, it would bring light into the darkness. If someone speaks this name, it would heal the brokenness. And all the characters in the book are saying, someone has to speak this name. And then all the characters of the book look up to the little boy. And the boy realizes, I'm being called to participate in this story. This book isn't safe. That's what Mark is doing. He did it. When Jesus calmed the winds and the waves, you remember that story? The storm's raging. The disciples are scared. They say, teacher, we're about to die. 
And Jesus talks to the wind and the, wa- and the waves as if it's a child. He says, peace, be still. And there was a great calm. And the disciples ask a question, who is this man that the wind and the waves obey? He doesn't answer the question. If you know nothing about Jesus and you're reading the gospel of Mark, you don't know the answer to that question. But he's calling you to answer it. He leaves it unanswered. We're like, tell us, Mark, who is he? Jesus, when he's in the temple talking to the religious leadership, we talked about this a few weeks ago, he asked them, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? He said, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And Mark leaves the question unanswered. He's, think about it, right? Jesus just walks off because Mark wants us to answer the question. He does it all throughout the book, unanswered questions, unfinished stories, and it makes you go, wait, 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 what is happening here? It makes you engage in the story. Who is this guy? Who is it that controls nature? Who is it that kings bow down to? And then he raises from the grave. The the angel tells the women, hey, go and tell. And they don't. And we get to the end of the story and we're like, why aren't they telling people? Why aren't they talking about the, the God who came, died, and rose from the grave? I don't understand why they wouldn't go, oh, I see what you did, Mark. I'm participating in the story. I'm partaking. And the book of Acts is the story of how the people of God went and they said, look to the risen Christ. And I think the Bible and God's inspiration through the Holy Spirit, it's calling to us, to the people of God, saying, what will you do with this story? So I'll leave us in the exact same place that I think Mark does, with an unfinished ending. And the question is, what will you do with the end of the story? Will you, one, have faith that only God can give? Faith that the God who created the universe, he came and he died and he rose. Will you believe it and will you tell it? Will you proclaim it just like the early church did? See the risen Christ. He's better.